morning. Welcome back. Really great to see you. Um, welcome to our students who are joining us for the first time, transferring in. So glad you're here and joining our community. Um, just delighted to have you. Um, a few words about this semester. Um, as you know, uh, Chaplain Messner and his family uh, have moved on. They're now in Atlanta. And if you would continue to keep them in prayer, um, Chaplain Messner, Pastor Messner, uh, will preach his first sermon at Westminster this Sunday. And I know he would appreciate your prayers for that and just for the ongoing transition for their family. I'm here at Covenant. I just want you to know that we have formed a search committee um, to begin looking for a new chaplain, and we'll be working together on that process over the course of this next semester. So please also be in prayer for that process. Um, in the meantime, though, we've got a great lineup of chapel speakers, um, visiting academic lecturers, local pastors, and many of our faculty as well. Um, we'll also continue to have occasional chapel luncheons with some of our guest speakers, and. I just want to encourage you to sign up for those opportunities to have lunch with speakers to hear more about their lives and ministry. Um, you'll be able to look on the chapel schedule and see when those are scheduled ahead of time, so plan accordingly. Um, and I also want to let you know that tomorrow, uh, if you're interested in any leadership opportunities at Covenant for next year, there's an info meeting um, tomorrow in Sanderson 215 at 11 o'clock. So, Please come to hear more about that. Um, before Dr. Ward, who's a professor in our Biblical and Theological Studies department, comes up to preach, would you join me in prayer? Almighty and eternal God, so draw our hearts to you, so guide our minds, so fill our imaginations, so control our wills, that we may be wholly yours, utterly dedicated unto you. And then use us, we pray, as you will, and always to your glory and the welfare of your people through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. We have family traditions at our house, pretty much uh, as I suppose all of us do. One of those is to go and see a movie on Christmas Eve day. And uh, for many years, it was the Lord of the Rings. Um, and uh, then there was this kind of dry spell. And then this year, the Hobbit. So you, you know where we had to go. And it was glorious. I, I tell you, after watching Peter Jackson's representation of the Shire, I wanted to move not just to New Zealand, but to the Shire. I mean, you can picture me, can't you, in a waistcoat and uh, <laughs> furry feet, tweed jacket, um, a little house built into the hillside with uh, round doors and round windows and a study crammed with books and a big mug of tea, be heaven. But of course, the problem for Bilbo was you don't get to stay there because life's a journey. And unexpected things happen. Sometimes a party of dwarves will show up and eat all of your cheese and draw you off on an unlikely adventure for which you are ill-prepared, whether it's to be a burglar or whatever the calling might be. And at the end of the road, there be dragons. What dragons are we facing at the start of 2013? I mean, 
think about it from a corporate standpoint, <laughs> I don't know if you pay attention to what's going on in Washington, D.C. I do, and it terrifies me. For the first time in my adult life, it appears as if there is a total lack of leadership of both sides of the aisle. Where are the leaders of vision, men and women who have the state's best interest at heart, who will come together and cross the aisle to ensure justice and righteousness as the rule of the land? Why is it that our kids aren't safe at school? You can't go into a shopping mall or a movie theater without the fear that someone might have an automatic weapon and they can fire and we survived the fall off the fiscal cliff, but I'll tell you, the debt crisis is right behind. And for those of you that are graduating in May, you're wondering, will there be jobs for me? And those are just the, the corporate dragons we confront. What about the individual ones? The challenges that we have relationally, those broken family relationships, or maybe it's with our roommate that we can't seem to get past. Reconciliation seems impossible. Or maybe it's a physical issue that you or a loved one is struggling with where the diagnosis is terrifying and the prognosis is hopeless. How do we deal with these dragons? Can we trust Jesus in 2013 with the dragons that we face? Will he be our dragon slayer? That's the question I want us to think about this morning as we step into this narrative and, and look at what Luke is doing. Luke, of course, has crafted his gospel in such a way that he wants to highlight that Jesus is the one that fulfills Isaiah 61. He's the one who announces that the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon him to set captives free, to preach good news to the poor, to restore sight to the blind and the lame to walk again. Jesus, Luke says, is the one that does that. And he tells stories about God's grace coming to unusual, dare we say, unlikely people. The centurion's servant, who cares about a Roman occupier and his problems? Well, Jesus does. Uh, the woman who is at Simon's house, who has lived a trashy life, who nobody has any respect for, Jesus loves her and says to her, your sins are released, go in peace. A bunch of ragtag disciples who are out on the Sea of Galilee. And by the way, if you go with Christiana to Jerusalem in May, you'll get to ride on the Sea of Galilee too. Just a little advert there. But they're out on the lake and a squall comes up and they're terrified. Even though they have seen Jesus at work and Jesus looks at the wind and the waves after they wake him up and says, Cut it out. Stop it. And everything becomes calm because he is the master of creation. He's the Lord of the universe. And then Luke says, they sailed to the Gerasenes. Jesus had an appointment, not the kind you put in your day timer or on your iPhone. This was a divine appointment. And Luke begins to unpack what happens. There is a demon-possessed man. Now, Luke is a doctor. He understands the difference between psychiatric illness and demon possession. Uh, he 
will sometimes identify an illness as being just a physical result of the fall. Other places he'll talk about it having um, a demonic component. And here he says plainly, they're demon-possessed. I say they because Matthew records there were two men. Mark and Luke focus just on the one who will respond to Jesus' generous offer of grace. The man is in a hopeless condition. He is naked. He's living in a cave among the tombs. Uh, he cuts himself with sharp rocks. And he's so violent that they've tried repeatedly to bind him in fetters. But even iron bonds cannot hold him. You would think this would be the last person Jesus would want to see. In the last place, it's taking place in the Decapolis, which is Gentile territory. It's unclean. And there just happens to be, Mark records, a herd of 2,000 pigs nearby, which for a Jewish rabbi is not a good mix. So it's not just unclean, it's unclean times three. And it's just the kind of situation Jesus loves. And he goes ashore, and this man pitches up. In fact, Mark tells us that he runs. When he sees Jesus from a distance, he runs to meet him. And, and Luke uses all kinds of uh, literary devices here to kind of heighten the story. He uses flashback. He, he tells us that the encounter goes this way. What do you want with me? And it's not clear whether it's the man or the demon speaking, but it's probably the demon. Son of the Most High God, don't torture me. Because if you're a demon troubling one of God's creatures, what do you expect but judgment? And this man expects judgment. The demon cries out because Jesus had commanded the demons to come out of him. And so they have this exchange. What is your name, Jesus asked him. Legion. And you know from New Testament intro that a legion was somewhere between 3,000 and 5,000 men. Um, here it's being used, obviously, metaphorically, that there are many demons troubling him. His situation is just not bad. It's absolutely, utterly impossible. And they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. Mark says just not to send them out of the area. The abyss was, in Jewish apocalyptic thought, the place where the demons would eventually end up. Why does the man run to see Jesus? That's the question I can't quite get past. What? Why does he go? What does he expect from a Jewish rabbi? What is he hoping for? And although Luke doesn't say this, I have to wonder whether it's possible that he runs to Jesus because he is out of options. He has no other resources available to him. There is no one that can help his hopeless situation except for the Lord. And he doesn't know what it will mean, but he's willing to venture and try and see. What impossible situations do you face? Over Christmas, Kathy and I decided we would make a road trip. Um, but the kind of road trip that you do like over 48 hours where you drive furiously one day and 
sleep for a few hours and drive furiously back. We were going to take up a load of furniture and some appliances to my son and his wife up in St. Louis. And to do that, we had to rent a truck. Now, you have to understand, I have a fear of big vehicles. No, not of seeing them, not of riding in them, of driving them. Because anybody that knows me knows I'm a klutz. And so when we walked up, and there was this 16-foot truck that looked like the Titanic. And I climbed up into the cab and realized I could see nothing. I was terrified. I shook all the way home. Uh, the next day, we got on the road, and I was doing pretty well. I hadn't hit anything yet. And we're heading up to go up and over Mount Eagle. You know the road if you've ever driven that before between here and Nashville. And I look out to the left, and there is an 18-wheeler three inches past my um, driver's side mirror. So close, I could spit at it. And I thought to myself, I'm going to die. It's a flaming wreck and I'm gonna take all these people with me. And I just, well, what do you do? You, you can't stop driving, you're stuck on the mountain, you're going up at 50 miles an hour or whatever. I cried out, Jesus, save us. I didn't do it audibly, I didn't want Kathy to think I was scared. <laughs> and guys, I cried out, Jesus, save us, all the way to St. Louis. And in fact, until the next morning when I pulled into the, uh, the budget running car place and dropped the keys off, um, I was praying, Lord, save us. Because this is beyond me. I, I, can't, I can't drive this thing. I'm not capable to get us out of this alive. I had good reason too, by the way. The, uh, the guy at budget said that people sometimes get so excited dropping the trucks off uh, they forget to stop and they drive into the building. Um, well, that's trivial, isn't it? Fear of trucks. What are you afraid of? When you, you think about the year stretching out ahead. What is it that you are most worried about? And how are you going to deal with it? You know, we have all kinds of ways we try to deal with things that scare us. Uh, sometimes we go into denial. Everything is fine, nothing's wrong. How's that working for you? Uh, sometimes we try to self-medicate uh, with drugs and alcohol, and I just assume in a crowd this big that there are some of us that are wrestling with substance abuse and alcoholism. Others disappear into a virtual world thinking that if we can live in the video game world, uh, we won't have to deal with the problems in the real one. Or maybe we just spend all of our time online so we never have to interact with the people that could hurt us and touch us deeply where we live. There are addictions of all kinds. A therapist I know says everybody's addicted to something because we all have this inbuilt tendency to seek after idols. Chris Wright says the only thing idols are good for is disappointment. That's the only thing you can reliably count on them to do is to disappoint you. And I just want to suggest, do you believe that Jesus is big enough to handle your dragons this year? And if he is, will you bring them to him? Will you say, I can't handle this, Lord. I need you to step in. I need for your grace to erupt into my life. Now look, I, I understand that you trust him for your salvation. And we rejoice that Jesus has, in fact, 
lived the life we could not live and died the death we could not die. And that by faith in him, we have eternal life. But the present is where the crunch comes. Are we trusting him now? Because Jesus longs to step in and to transform our lives. Look what he does with the man. When those, verse 34, were tending the pigs, saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Here is a man in a hopeless situation, and God's grace erupts into his life through the person of Christ, and he is transformed. He's no longer possessed by forces he cannot control. Now he's a disciple of Jesus sitting at his feet. God longs to break into our lives through the power of his spirit and free us. Maybe we're not facing demon possession, which, by the way, um, be careful when it comes to the demonic. There are two tendencies, Lewis says. One is to deny its existence. The other is to become excessively focused on it. And it can become the case that sometimes every problem we encounter, we see a demon under a rock. That's not the teaching of scripture. Yes, Satan and his troops are alive and well and at work. They've been defeated at the cross, but they can still inflict damage. But it is careless of us to assume that someone who has a situation that might be due to a physiological or psychiatric condition is dealing with the demonic. You need to have a good workup with a good doctor uh, where they're able to rule out any physiological issues uh, before moving to that conclusion. And then recognize that as a believer in Jesus Christ, Satan can attack you, he can harass you, he can oppress you, he cannot demonize you. Because Paul says in Romans 8 that nothing, including demons and angels, will separate you from the love of Christ. We may not be dealing with that, but what about the issues we do deal with? Are we willing to identify them and to say, Lord, take this and deal with it? Transform us by the power of your spirit. Well, then you see, of course, the aftermath. Not just an unexpected transformation, but Jesus gives him a gracious commission. Uh, the people of the region want him to leave. Can you imagine that? The Lord of glory is physically present. He is doing amazing things, and they want him to get out of Dodge on the first train. And so Jesus leaves, because Luke says that his coming and the gospel of the kingdom will be for the rising and falling of many. There are those who have their hearts softened by the proclamation of the gospel and respond in repentance and faith, and there are those whose hearts harden and they mutter under their breasts, and they walk away without hope in the world. But the man is there, and he says, Jesus, I want to go with you. Let me be with you. Let me follow you. And Jesus says, nope, I want you to go home. And Mark records into the Decapolis, the ten cities of the Gentiles. I want you to go back and tell everyone what the Lord has done for you. And that's what he does. 
He becomes, Chris Wright says, the first missionary to the Gentiles. How cool is that? And we know that he does a good job because when Jesus comes back to the Decapolis at a later time, the people of the town, they don't run this time, but they bring a man that is deaf and mute to Jesus because they know what he's capable of. I like to go to shopping centers with my wife because I like to spend time with her. I don't like to shop. So if you have been with us at Kohl's before Christmas, you would have seen me reading a very interesting article by Kevin Van Hooser. I just kind of go stand over, you know, by the customer service place and, and read and make notes in the margins. Um, and, I, and even when I'm not with Kathy, I tend to have something in my pocket to read. So one day I was at Bilo and getting ready to check out, and this guy starts bugging me. And being an introvert, I do not like to be bugged by people I do not know. I did not want to talk to him. I wanted to read and be on my way. And uh, he was a, a janitor from one of the local area high schools, and he started telling me his life story, which I most decidedly was not interested in. <laughs> Guys, I'm being really vulnerable. I'm a pastor, for heaven's sakes. <laughs> um, so he's telling me how he doesn't remember his 20s because he was so stoned during that time that he missed that decade. And then Jesus came into his life and set him free. Just set him free, he said. And he wanted to tell me what Jesus had done for him. And all of a sudden, I looked down at his hands, and I realized he is not holding anything. This guy is not shopping. He is a stealth Bilo evangelist. <laughs> what he does is he gets into queues and grabs unsuspecting people to tell them what Jesus has done. And my heart just melted and I found myself walking out to the car saying, Lord, make me like him. What has the Lord done for you? Chris Wright says the best antidote to fear is a good memory. Maybe you need to find some time this week to sit down with a journal or a legal pad or something and just begin to write down all of the times that Jesus has been faithful to you. And then write down all the things that represent dragons in your life, all the, the um, impossible situations you face, the hopeless situations where you have no idea of what to do. And then follow the Apostle Paul's advice. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. Tell them. Tell them what you face. Tell them how dependent you are on his grace. Peter says, casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. And move ahead in faith. Tim Keller says this. Jesus shows his authority can heal the darkest troubles in the deepest recesses of the human soul, individually and corporately. He can handle the problems and forces that enslave us. Listen, there is no bondage so strong he can't break it. There is no addiction so devastating that Jesus can't set us free. There is no idol so precious that he doesn't long to take it away and give us life and that abundantly. And joy bubbling up and flowing over. 
He longs to come in. We just have to ask him to do so. You know, really, at the end of the day, The Hobbit isn't my favorite. The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, that last bunch of scenes at the end where Aragorn, who plays this king figure, almost a Christ figure, is standing there before the tree of Gondor, which in Tolkien's thinking represents the tree of life in the new city of Jerusalem. And you think about the Apostle John in the book of Revelation saying, the leaves of the tree of life are for the healing of the nations. Surely, brothers and sisters, that includes us. Surely there is a day coming when Jesus will return make everything new, and as Sam says to Gandalf, make everything sad come untrue. We wait, but we wait in expectation and hope and confidence for that day to come. Let's pray. Father, uh, we pray that you would in these moments work in our hearts to break us from our attachment to our idols to the things that we use to self-medicate, Lord, that we would just stop it and cease striving and be still and know that you are God and that we would bring these so-called dragons to you and ask you to be mighty to save and ask you to restore our strength and restore our hope. And Father, enable us to walk a renewed life in obedience before you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.